0: If you have a Bible this morning, let's look at Luke chapter number one. Luke chapter number one. And if you want to be an overachiever, you can look at Isaiah chapter number nine. We'll be there just briefly this morning. In fact, this will be a very brief uh, message, but I believe it's a very <clears throat> timely message for us. Our pastor started a series a couple of weeks ago entitled Here is Our King. The great news about Christmas is that God gave us His very best in the person of, of Jesus Christ, that He did not just give us advice, but He gave us Himself, because He knew that apart from Him, we could do nothing, apart from Him, we do not have salvation. So we've been looking at these names of, of Jesus in Isaiah, that He is, in fact, <clears throat> the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. This morning I want to spend just a little bit of time unpacking this truth and this reality that God is mighty. That God is mighty. I'll never forget when my son Micah, my first son Micah, was born. Meredith was preeclamptic had a hard time even <clears throat> recognizing Meredith, there were a lot of complications with her, and there was a lot of complications with Micah's birth. I'll never forget the nurse looking at me and saying, we need to do something fast. I was in the middle of a staff meeting in Florida when I got the phone call. Look, I'm leaving the OBGYN, and I'm heading to the hospital. And I said, are you kidding? She says, I'm not kidding. You need to get here. And that's when the nurse confronted me and says, look, we need to do something quick. I called my mom, she lived in Jacksonville, she's a a registered nurse, so she understood the language that was going on. They're telling me all these things, and I'm like, I don't understand one thing that's coming out of your mouth. I just know there's something serious taking place. Micah had a lot of complications, there were were multiple uh, reasons for us to be a little frantic, and for us to be a little concerned, especially when it's your wife and your firstborn child. But I'll never forget watching my mom walk through the door of Waterman Hospital in the Orlando area. And if I could just say it this way, she went after it. She went after it. She started speaking their language. She started saying, look, very respectfully, um, why is this not happening? Why is this not happening? And why is this not happening yesterday? And I remember the look in her eyes, the tone of her voice. And I remember just stepping back, being like, she's got this. She can handle this. Blake, just just look at your son through the glass for a little bit. Your mama's got this. And there's an interesting reality for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is in despair. Isaiah is prophesying about the circumstances that are surrounding Israel this nation, and what God is going to do about it. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21 says this, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. I mean, how many of you would agree those are some troubled times? These are very difficult, dark, and discouraging times. Israel is about to march into some of their darkest days as a nation. But I want to remind you this morning that though human power fails us, we saw a testimony of that this morning. Though human power fails us, there is a God who does not fail. There is a God who, I mean, just as my mom walked into Waterman, and I was like, you've got this. There is a God who walks in, who steps in, wraps himself in flesh, and he says this, I've got this. I'm a mighty God. I'm a powerful God. Verse number 1 of chapter 9 says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Verse 6, we love this. For to us, it's Israel, but also to us, a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. The question I'm asking is, what is the difference between Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 9? What is the difference? The difference is Jesus. The difference is Jesus. This morning, the difference is still Jesus. Jesus is the mighty God, as Isaiah would describe. In the Hebrew, it's El Gabor. This this word Gabor conveys this truth and this reality that He is a warrior. He is a hero. He is a fighting soldier. He is a champion, El, which means God. It's saying this, that your God... He's a, he's a mighty God. He's a warrior God. He is a hero God. He is fighting for you. Exodus 14, 14. God fights for us. Deuteronomy 1.30, God fights for us. Nehemiah 4.20, God fights for us. I'm just here to tell you: we don't have a sissy God. We don't have a weak God. We don't have a God that we can box in. We don't have a God that we can even fully comprehend. But I want to remind you this morning that no matter how you came in today, your God is mighty. Your God is a strong God. Many of you this morning maybe, just maybe, have come in today, and let's just be real. You're overwhelmed. The circumstances of your life have overwhelmed you. Maybe you are discouraged Maybe you are weighed down by the circumstances of your life. I'm just here to tell you that Jesus is, in fact, the light of the world. He wants to invade every dark space in our minds, every dark space in our hearts. He is, in fact, hope for all humanity. He's a mighty God. That's who we serve. That's the God that we have. Now, Luke chapter number 1 Interesting passage of scripture. You've heard this. Give you a little bit of background. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sends Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, to Mary. Now, I just imagine this is not what Mary was expecting. All right? I imagine this was a very normal day for Mary. When all of a sudden she is surprised by Gabriel and even more so by the message that he would bring to her. He speaks to this virgin named Mary. And as you can imagine, she is disturbed by the message that she hears. She is puzzled by the message that she hears. But Gabriel puts Mary at ease. Why is that? Because he has good news for her. That she is in fact going to give birth to the one called Jesus. She is going to give birth to the one that is the mighty God, the one who is the everlasting Father, the one who is the Prince of Peace, the one who is the, the essence of hope for humanity. So this message is coming across to her. Imagine she maybe spit out her water for a second. And maybe imagine she said, I think you might have the wrong number. Right? You showed up. You've spoken this over, to, over my life. The angel explains how this is going to transpire. All right, Newsflash. Mary's a virgin. There needs to be some explanation. So the angel explains that, that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her. She's going to be overshadowed by the power of the Most High. And the child that is born to her is holy, and he is, in fact, the Son of God. Now, aware of her family member, Elizabeth, she's also pregnant. Okay, and I don't know if you know this, but Elizabeth is up in age, so she goes to Elizabeth's house, and Elizabeth is is filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, when Mary greets her, the baby in her womb, in Elizabeth's womb, which is John the Baptist, leaps for joy. It's, It's even further confirmation. She even speaks this over Mary and says, you are the mother of the Lord. And Mary, she says, look, this assignment that has been given to me is so great. But there's one thing that I know, that I'm a servant of the Lord. And she says in the text, she says, for nothing will be impossible with God. For Mary, it did not matter if she were able to understand it all. She believed that God was able to do what He said He would do. And that was enough. That was enough for her. She believed that nothing is impossible with God. So what does she do? She launches into this sizable prayer, praising God known as Mary's Magnificat. Her heart responds and her mouth is filled with praise. Her, her song actually teaches us an important principle about prayer. Because in this song, in this prayer, Mary asks for nothing. But she simply breathes adoration and her mouth is filled with thankfulness. She can no longer contain this joy. She can no longer contain this wonder that has been building in her for days. And she lets loose, if you will, with praise. She focuses primarily on the character of God who regards and honors her as a humble servant of his. So there's just three things I want to show you from this passage real quickly. This mighty God that we have. The first thing I want you to see is this. God is personal. God is personal. Look at verse 46 of chapter number 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The authenticity of, of these verses. Verse 46 to 55 have been debated by what we would call critical theologians because they ask this question how could a young teenage peasant girl possibly have penned such profound theological truths it's been debated how could a teenager say this, say this mary's magnificat how could she muster this up. And I'm just here to tell you in my humble opinion, I have absolutely no problem believing that these words came from the heart and off the lips of Mary. I have no problem believing that. Why is that? Because Mary's song is rooted in her personal relationship, in her personal experience with God, and in her biblical perception of God. That Mary, uh, her parents, think about this for a moment, her parents had raised her I would say this, in the ways of the Lord. This, this, these words that come off of Mary's lips and they come from her heart, I believe that, that this wasn't the first time she started praising the Lord. I mean, as you look at this passage, there are so many correlations to Old Testament truths. So many. I mean, you can even think of Hannah in 1 Samuel. There are so many things. She was a well-versed young lady. She was a well-versed, let me say this, teenager. She had experience with God. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. She loved God. She walked with God. She knew the words of God. She thought biblically. Don't miss that. She thought biblically, and her mind was saturated in God's Word. I mean, after she had heard from Gabriel, after she had been with Elizabeth, the Word of God that she had hidden in her heart, started coming out of her mouth. The word that she had memorized, the word that she had lived in, started coming out in her her situation and in her circumstances. Mary says this, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I want to pause for just a second. So much for Immaculate Conception. The Roman Catholic Church would believe this that Mary is sinless. Mary says this: "I rejoice in God, my Savior. She has a personal God. She carries the Savior in her womb, that ultimately is going to pay the price for her sin. Mary was not sinless. I would say this one of the primary reasons she magnifies the Lord, one of the primary reasons she rejoices in her Lord is because in her womb is the hope of humanity. In her womb is the sufficient payment for her sin. But she says my soul magnifies the Lord. I love the the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've watched that. But there's this scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, where this young girl, her name is Lucy, and she's sent on a great mission by Aslan, which is this lion, which is a great picture of of Christ. And as she travels by night, she notices the great beast, Aslan, this roaring lion, who is sitting on a hill. I hope you've seen this, because it can come to your mind right now. And the lion is sitting there on this hill and the the moon is is behind him and it's just illuminating this, this massive creature. And she runs and embraces Aslan and she says this. She says, you're bigger. She says, you're bigger. And this majestic creature answers, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. For Mary, she can't expand the greatness and bigness of God. When she says, I magnify the Lord, it's not saying I'm making him bigger. You can't make God any bigger. The earth is his footstool. That's as big as it gets. But what this truth is conveying to us is that God became bigger. He expanded in her. She had a greater perception As she walked with Him, she had greater understanding as she she served Him and worshipped Him. He became bigger in her soul that this God who created everything out of nothing, who holds the world in His hands, this God holds her hand. And this God is becoming her personal and very big God within her soul. I mean, imagine for a moment the circumstances that are surrounding Mary, just imagine for a moment that just the life that she is living, the confusion maybe that she is experiencing. I mean, what is Joseph going to say? They're engaged. What's Joseph going to say when she's like, oh, there's a baby inside of me. Of course, you know, the Lord met with Joseph in a personal way. But imagine what the community would say. Imagine what her reputation would be. That this God as as she magnifies the Lord. Don't miss this. As she magnifies the Lord, she's refusing to magnify her circumstances. She's refusing to make large her circumstances. As she makes large the Lord in her soul and in her spirit, she refuses to make the very real circumstances of her life any larger. Because she believes that God is in fact mighty. She considers the Lord. She would meditate on the Lord. She would think about God. He would frequent her thoughts and would take residence in her mind. When Mary would give careful thought to the Lord, she began to rejoice. I say that to you today. If you'd slow down and give careful thought to the Lord, you'd begin to rejoice. You'd begin to praise. You'd begin to Worship. I'm just here to tell you this. The more you dwell upon God, I don't think it's possible not to have a tear fall down your face. I don't think it's possible, I'll be real honest with you, not to shout a little bit. I don't think it's possible for us to say, look, this God... This God who has saved us. This God who is very personal with us. I magnify Him with my soul. I magnify Him with my spirit. And the more I magnify the Lord, the more I rejoice in the God of my salvation. When you have a personal walk with a personal God, you will have a personal song and you will rejoice in God your Savior. You will rejoice in God your Savior. Savior. Look at verse 48. For He has looked. This is where we get this concept of God is personal. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For from now on, all generations will call me blessed. What this is saying is God is personal. The NIV would say this. He has been mindful. Which means He has taken notice of the lowly and humble estate of His servant. You know Psalm 8 verse 4? It says, who am I that you are mindful of me? I mean, would you allow that just to sit for a second? Who are we that that God is mindful of us? This mighty God that we have is a personal God. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He didn't just come to give you advice. He gave Himself to you. He is a personal God. And Mary recognizes this. Mary recognizes that she is nothing without the Lord. She has learned the necessity of walking in humility. If she would have magnified the, the cares of this world, if she would have magnified her needs, her weaknesses, her duties, she would have been discouraged. She would have been distracted. And here's your third point as a Baptist preacher. She would have been defeated. But she magnifies the Lord. Mary knows this, that God is omniscient. Omniscient means this, that God is all-knowing. I mean, literally, this passage that says, For he looked on the humble estate. This literally means he turns his head in her direction and sets his eyes on her. He turns his head in her direction and sets his eyes on her. You want to talk about a personal God? A personal God who he has not overlooked to you, the circumstances that you are facing, you are you are not overlooked. He sees you. He has not forgotten you. He turns his head in your direction and sets his eyes on you. God is personal. It's nine fifteen. I've got two seconds. Verse forty nine says this: "For he who is mighty, there it is. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy." is His name. We're all family here. How much time do I have? I'm not trying to perform for you. I just need 15, 9.15 to be done. Okay. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Now here's the deal. i gotta, I got to go through this real quick. The fact that God wrapped Himself in flesh and is in the womb of Mary shows us this, that God is mighty. We can look at the creation and say that He is mighty. But in this passage, Mary is saying this mighty God has done great things. Listen, for me. That God has done something miraculous. The great thing that God promised in Isaiah 7, verse 14. I wish we had time to go there. Even though it was biologically impossible... God did it. I mean, Luke would tell us what is impossible with men is possible with God. Can we just believe for a moment this morning? I know we've got a short window of time right now, but can we just believe for a moment that your first point this morning is God is personal, and your second point is this God is powerful. He's powerful, He's, he's mighty, He's strong. He does the impossible. This isn't like fairy world. This isn't some mystical reality. No, this is God's Word. This is God's truth. That there is nothing outside of possibility with God. Nothing is impossible. This, this week I was in North Carolina... And my grandmother, she's in her 90s, the godliest woman I've ever met in my entire life. I'm not even kidding. I walked into her basement this morning about had a shout and spell. I'm talking hundreds of spiral-bound notebooks of Bible studies that she has done from Genesis to Revelation. She's the godliest woman I've ever met. She's sitting at this table, all her family is around, and she says, What are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? And when Grandma speaks, you listen. And when Grandma speaks, you speak. And we were not around that table, all of our family, for a, a solid hour. I don't think there was a dry eye in the place. And if I could summarize what took place right there, it's this right here. This God who is mighty has done great things for me. This, this God who is, who is mighty is, is powerful. This God who is mighty looks at every impossibility in our lives and says this, I know it's not good grammar, but it's good theology. Impossible don't exist. Impossible does not exist. He makes dry wombs conceive. He removes hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh. Listen, I'm just here to tell you this. He walks out of His own tomb. They crucified Him. Three days in a borrowed tomb. You know why it was a borrowed tomb? Because He knew He wasn't going to stay very long. And I'm just here to tell you this, that yes, Mary, with the fullness of the Godhead in her womb, speaks this truth and the reality that impossible does not exist. That God is personal and God is powerful. But I'm here to tell you this, there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem that reminds us every single day that God is powerful. That impossible does not exist. Verse 50 through 53, man, I wish we had time. You can come over for coffee and we can talk about it. But there's there's two primary things I want you to see in this concept of God is powerful. Is, Is God honors the humble and God helps the helpless. You've heard that statement, God helps those who help themselves. That's not right. He he helps the helpless. I'm just here to tell you this that as your mighty God, hear me, hear me. He's attracted to your weakness. And I'll take it one step further because she doesn't just speak comfort but she speaks a very convicting word that he opposes us in our pride. He actually lines up against you in our in our pride. He actually, I mean, listen, I have a hard time. I mean, there ain't one person in this room that could put the toothpaste back in the tube. And we're talking about a God who created everything out of nothing. And Paul would say in Philippians, at his name, every single knee is going to bow, and every single tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I'm just here to tell you, my friends, we're going to bow now or we're going to bow later. But regardless of where we find ourselves, we're going to bow. We're going to bow. This God is powerful. He honors the humble. He helps the helpless. So we see God is personal. God is powerful. Man, I don't want to rush this, but we've got to. And the final thing is God is faithful. Verse 54, come on. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God will... Always help His people. The history of Israel tells us the story of God's mercy. I mean, start in Genesis chapter 12 and read onwards. Each page recalls tender, loving salvation for this right here. Undeserving people. Mary reflects on the announcement of the birth of Christ as proof that God has not forgotten Israel what started as a promise to Abraham, and I'm talking 2,000 years prior to this, what started as a promise to Abraham is now coming into fulfillment. He's personal. He's powerful. And hear this. He's faithful. That if God says it, He's going to do it. He will always help His people. He will always keep His promises. You can trust Him. His delays are not His denials. You can trust Him. So I conclude with this right here. Then we're going to give an invitation. This mighty God, who's personal, who's powerful, who's faithful. Say it one more time. He's personal. He's powerful. And he's faithful. Wants to be your mighty God. He wants to be your mighty God. My my heart kept going back to James. And I promise you, this plane's about the land. But James chapter 5, verse 13, I couldn't get away from this verse. But this is what it says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I believe that's the essence of Mary's heart. Is anyone around you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone around you cheerful? Let him sing praise to... He's personal. He's powerful. And he's faithful. Let's pray. God, I love you and I'm grateful for what you have done in my heart and in my life through this passage of scripture. God, I pray that even right now, Lord, you'd get past the rush of this. You would get through to our hearts right now, God, that you are a mighty God. You are El Gabor, you are the warrior champion hero God and you're personal, you're powerful and you're faithful so I pray Lord Jesus that if there's anybody in this room that does not have a real relationship with you, Lord I pray that they would come to their mighty God today he's attracted to their weakness, he'll give them strength So, Lord, I pray right now that you'd work in our hearts and lives during this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't mind, let's stand to our feet.